My cell phone signal went just south of Dundee, near a barn devoured by the one thing that positively thrives down here, kudzu. Kudzu was introduced into the United States in 1876 by the Japanese as part of their exhibition to celebrate the 100th birthday of America at an expo in Pennsylvania. The capacious leaves and pungent sweet smell worked their magic on America's gardeners, who used kudzu as an ornamental plant. It was also promoted as being a soil conservation plant, a foodstuff for foraging animals, a nutritious drink, and about a thousand other things you and I wouldn't think of doing with it. The problem that became apparent fairly soon after its introduction was that kudzu was just too good at growing. Left alone, kudzu vines can grow more than 60 feet per year. At that rate, they can and do very easily envelop everything. Kudzu was classified as a weed only in 1972, which by then was pretty much too late. The question then arose, how do we get rid of this stuff? The answer was not easily. A number of herbicides were tried. Most did nothing. One actually encouraged kudzu growth. A type of moth was discovered that fed on kudzu, but the moths also ate soybeans, an expensive crop. So, to control the thriving moth population, wasp larvae were impregnated into the moths in the hope that they would subsequently eat them. It sounds good, in theory. However, this convoluted process may turn out to be costlier than just leaving the kudzu alone. In the 1990s, the Congressional Office of Technology estimated the economic cost of kudzu, which covered at least 7 million acres throughout the South, to be about $50 million annually. Now, though, it's not just the South that's affected. For years, the boundaries of the South and the kudzu growth limit were synonymous. Lately, though, kudzu has been reported as far away as Illinois and Massachusetts. Clarksdale, the next town over, seemed flat and hot, much like a micro-Mississippi. On the far side of town, we passed three hitchhikers in a half-mile strip, the only three that we saw on the whole trip. Once out of town, we returned to ploughed fields as far as the eye can see. The towns on the map, like Hollandale, Egremont, Nitayuma, all turned out to be smaller than expected, often just a couple of houses next to a bridge. We were low on gas, so we stopped at the first gas station we found in Anguilla. In fact, Anguilla seemed to be the gas station. Apart from one or two outbuildings, there wasn't anything else there. But for a remote town near to nowhere, the place was bouncing. Inside was full of people buying ice and fried chicken shooting the breeze over a coffee, in fact doing anything except paying for gas. We pressed onto Vicksburg, an old town lying on the bluffs overlooking the Mississippi. Actually, it overlooks the Yazoo River, but it used to be the Mississippi, until that river cut a new path away from town of its own accord. In order not to suffer economically from a diversion on the river traffic, vital to a place like Vicksburg, the citizens of Vicksburg simply constructed a new channel. Nowadays, though, you'd call it a backwater. New channels are not. But at one time, this was an important town. Abraham Lincoln called it the key to the Confederacy, a key which he was desperate to place in his pocket during the Civil War years. Vicksburg was the last surviving Confederate river fortress on the Mississippi during the late unpleasantness, and was keeping the link between the East and West Confederacy open. The Union was desperate to sever this link, as it would alienate Texas, Arkansas, and most of Louisiana from the remainder of the southern states, and should, it was hoped, end the Civil War far earlier. Union attacks from the East and West during the war both failed, and so Ulysses Grant and Sherman laid siege to the town with over 70,000 men. The 18,500 men inside the town held out for 47 days until forced into submission through starvation and constant bombing 
eventually surrendering on the 4th of July 1863, the same day as the Rebs took a beating up in a small town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Not a good day for the South. Because of this, it was over a hundred years before the residents of Vicksburg could bring themselves to celebrate Independence Day. We stopped on Washington Street in the Old Town and walked about in the surprising heat of early March. This was a weekday afternoon and there was scarcely anyone around. I wandered into an antique store opposite to browse, but it was crammed with junk mainly. Rusted, random chunks of metal with Civil War artifact written on them in price tags and scrawly handwriting. Even if we'd been mad enough to buy a Confederate bullet or Union shell casing, or even an antique Coca-Cola bottle, I couldn't have. The shop was completely deserted. A sign on the door said, I'm next door. But next door, on either side, was, predictably, closed. We ambled about the town on uneven grass-covered footways. This was a tourist town Mississippi style. The pretty but sparse visitor's centre gave us a few pointers about what to see and where to stay in town, and so we took it from there. Emily's guidebook said Vicksburg is also known as the Gibraltar of the South and the city of a hundred hills. Not the sort of thing you particularly want to hear before undertaking a walking tour of the town. Nevertheless, we passed, in no particular order, the Biedenhorn Museum, where Coca-Cola was apparently invented, or at least first bottled, a contemporary riverboat casino on the Yazoo, Yesterday's Children Antique Doll and Toy Museum next to the Grey and Blue Naval Museum, housing an impressive collection of Civil War gunboat models incorporated with 2,500 miniature soldiers in a large diorama of the never-to-be-forgotten siege, a house with a Civil War cannonball still lodged in it, none of which we went back to see as the walking tour took so long. So really, all we saw was the outside of the above structures, which in itself wasn't that bad a choice. The sun was slowly falling into the sippy, as we arrived back at the car and, after a ten minute drive around the environs, we settled on a place called the Battlefield Inn for tonight's lodging. Pulling up to the joint, a sign made from interchangeable letters in the parking lot said, The Battlefield Inn welcomes Mississippi's gas station attendants. Far be it from me to denigrate the blue collar workers of this state, but can there really be that much for the guys who pump gas for a living to discuss? The lobby was distinctly southern. Enormous portraits of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson flanked us as we entered. The southernosity of it all appealed to me. As I signed in at reception, I was given some wooden tokens for a free drink that evening, as well as breakfast the next morning. The lady also told me I was entitled to one free pull of the miniature slot machine next to me. I pulled, and predictably, won a free dessert in the hotel's restaurant that evening. I asked if I could just go along for the dessert but she said no, I would have to order at least one full-price entree. The hotel was of the three sides around a swimming pool type of place, each roomlet being dedicated to someone or other. Ours was called the Horn Quarters, and was dedicated to Charles and Odessa Horn of Chicago, Illinois, whoever they were. For a change, Emily and I ate out for dinner, which proved to be a big mistake on my part, leaving me in such a state that it made the whole of the following day an unnecessarily taxing affair. It was all down to the Chinese restaurant and the quality of the food contained therein. Because of the MSG-laced chicken, beef, prawn, noodles and ice cream was so cheap and presented in a $7 all-you-can-eat buffet, I ate far more than I should have. Wash it down with a quart of full sugar coke and you have the exact method and ingredients that scientists use to create stomach disorders in a lab. Leaving Vicksburg from the west the following morning, we crossed an iron bridge which took us into Louisiana 
and state number six for the trip. Louisiana, a brief skirmish through time. 1542, Hernando de Soto discovers us. 1803, America buys us. 1812, we're in the Union. 1861, we're out of the Union. 1868, we're back in the Union. 2001, two dumb kids drive through us and don't like it much. Almost immediately the landscape changed to suit my stereotype. Bayous, thousands of trees and general swampy conditions. Emily was driving while I was on Gator, Creole, Cajun watch, but was unsuccessful on all counts. 200 years ago the entire country from here to the Pacific was an unknown, unexplored nothingness. In April of 1803, with the United States having done possibly the best piece of real estate business imaginable and managing to double the size of itself overnight with what is called the Louisiana Purchase, the West was opened up to anyone curious enough to venture out there. Everything to the West belonged in one of four areas. The now American-owned Louisiana Purchase, the Spanish possessions stretching to the West Coast, the British possessions far up north in what is now Canada, and the somewhat indeterminate Oregon country in the Northwest. The United States had only been intending to purchase New Orleans, but to their amazement, France seemed to want to sell all of their possessions and at a bargain price of $15 million. However, no one was sure if it was a bargain at the time as very few people had actually been there. Everyone is aware of the Lewis and Clark Corps Discovery Expedition, but what's not realized is that it was originally going to be a semi-clandestine mission as at the time of conception, the area did not belong to the United States. There was only a rough estimate of how large this area was, and although it was understood the Louisiana Purchase stretched as far as the Continental Divide, no one knew where this was either. The previous owners, the French, called it Pie Inconnu, or Unknown Land. Indeed, when Thomas Jefferson came to equip the men with maps, the best he could do was give them a jumble of geographical hearsay compiled over the prior 200 years, much of it sketchy in detail and some of it just plain misleading. Outlandish tales had arisen about an area of which nothing was known. There were miniature devils in the hills, bands of Welsh-speaking natives, a tribe of single-breasted female Indians who were experts with a bow, an enormous mountain of salt, fantastic creatures and other such marvels. None of which was true, of course, but nobody was to know that back then. It was in the low 70s as we pulled into Burger King in Bastrop, Louisiana, as far as I could tell, located somewhere within the Dagobah system. Bastrop was surrounded by trees, a claustrophobic atmosphere being produced by them. Partly because of this, we couldn't figure out which way to leave town. So Emily pulled alongside a Bastrop Parish police car that was parked up on a side road. Inside sat an old guy in a disheveled old dress suit who looked anything but a policeman. I had to ask him twice before he heard me. I had the feeling he'd been sleeping before we arrived. And he murmured something about the road we were being on being the correct route. In retrospect, the journey northwards from Bastrop was the most boring of the entire trip. Tall grey trees on either side for miles. On bends, we briefly had trees behind and in front of us too. Occasionally there'd be a break in the forest for a one-story home or dirty trailer with untidy piles of logs and roof materials battling it out with old automobiles for space in the front yard. After around four hours of this arboreal tedium, we arrived in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, heavy on the pines and light on the bluffs, from where we were sitting anyway. 
After a breakfast beside a covered-over pool, we left Pine Bluff's pretty courthouse in wide streets and headed north to Little Rock, state capital and former home to 47th U.S. President Bill Clinton. Little Rock seemed a big city, certainly as far as our concern goes, taking us half an hour on a congested I-40 to clear town and return to the undulating greenery. We take it in turns to drive, alternating between mornings and afternoons every day. Firstly, a route check with Rand McNally, then a quick distance, toilet facilities, gas calculation check, and we get on our way. Sometimes if you're driving on the interstate, you recognise cars from hours ago, and there appears to be a sort of unspoken camaraderie between you all. You might lead the convoy until the ball guy in the Lexus takes over for a while. You could then drop back into the main peloton. The purple Toyota Corolla, much like the car you first owned, passes the Lexus, but stays within sight. This is great. Wouldn't it be neat if we all stopped at the same restaurant for lunch and sat at the same table, like a kind of like a group or whatever, and discussed the drive so far? Fan-freaking-tastic, said Emily, cruelly. In reality, what happens is your newfound friends turn off and head for home or work or somewhere else, and you never see them again. You feel they should have at least waved, waved at you, you know, as you sail past their exit. But you're ignored. They have family and colleagues on their mind and cell phones. You're left to find some new friends, others that wish to drive across the state and participate in your your real-life wacky race. Want to stop for a drink, inquired Emily. Not now, Muttley, I muttered in my best dick dastardly. I warn you, she said, don't call me Muttley, not even as a joke. 